Hi, and welcome to Edible Ocean with Professor Tony Winson. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. In episode one, we discover that the impact we humans have had on the oceans is by no means of recent origin. In fact, there's a surprisingly long history of human impact on the ocean that has been quite significant. Helping us understand this reality is Professor Jeffrey Bolster, who for many years was a professor of history at the University of New Hampshire. His book, The Mortal Sea, Fishing the Atlantic in the Age of Sail, published by Harvard University, has won several awards. With its focus on the Northwest Atlantic, it is truly pioneering work in establishing and understanding the long-term impact humans have had on the marine world. So here is Professor Tony's interview with Jeffrey Bolster. So very happy to have you with us today, Jeffrey. Thanks for inviting me, Tony. Well, I'm, I'm glad you've agreed to be on our uh, podcast. This book has just opened up my eyes and provides so many questions that I, I'd love to, uh, to ask you today. For most of us with some familiarity with the marine environment, we would see the major decline in fish stocks, for, for example, dating from the post-World War II period. And, and the advent of, say, large factory trawler ships processing masses of fish on the high seas. However, you write in your book, and I'm quoting you here, disaster struck both fish and fishermen periodically in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, then universally at the end of the 20th century, in part because neither fishers nor scientists nor policymakers chose to believe that what they were seeing was happening. The sea was not immortal. Um, and you, you know even fisheries declined beginning in the time of George Washington in the Atlantic uh, coast of the United States. Can you comment on this much longer timeline for fisheries decline? Yeah, that's what the book's really about, Tony. I mean, it covers a thousand years, really, all the way back to the Viking era in Europe. And it goes uh, up through, well, just 10 years ago when it was published. But the, the emphasis there is the is the the four centuries of what we would call the exploration and settlement of Atlantic Canada and the coastal U.S., and um, ultimately into the the beginning of industrialized fisheries. And the case that I make, probably the most stunning way to make this, actually, for people that aren't familiar with the long story, is that when we look at these explorers' accounts who were here in the 15 and 1600s, they just marveled at the coastal ecosystem, the productivity and the abundance and the size of individual organisms. And sometimes those accounts have been dismissed as propaganda in the mid-late 20th century. They were routinely dismissed as propaganda. But they were written by Frenchmen and Englishmen, seamen and landmen, clerics and laity with different agendas, and there's not a single refutation. What these guys are seeing, this is the payoff to your question, is that these men who were very familiar with what the coastal ecosystems of boreal Europe, northern Europe, could produce, sturgeon, eider ducks, salmon, shad, whatever. They came to America, and they saw all the same species, but in totally different numbers and sizes and abundances. What they were commenting on when they got here, without knowing it, is what the European seas had looked like in the Neolithic, when populations were small, hunter-gatherers transitioning to agriculture, just as native peoples were here in Atlanta, Canada, and New England when the explorers got here. So this process of uh, 
overfishing uh, it's been going on for a very 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 long time and uh, that is the the thrust of the book it's what scientist Daniel Pauly labeled years ago as the shifting baseline syndrome that each generation imagines that what it sees was sort of the norm and then they watch it go down hill in their lives and say oh things are getting worse but this has been going on in effect for uh, essentially a thousand years but you know when we think uh, of uh, terrestrial ecosystems in North America and the impact of Europeans. We know what happened to the bison. We know what happened to the passenger pigeons. So perhaps this shouldn't be really that surprising. Not surprising, Tony, except that the fiction for centuries until, you know, your generation and mine was the last one to come of age imagining that the sea was immortal. And that was the sort of thing we were taught in school. And the combined heft of, of literature and tradition and science said that man's control stops with the shore. And everyone knew that humans, of course, could affect landscapes. You could, you know, trap all the beaver or cut down all the trees or whatever. But no one imagined that puny little humans in their puny little boats could have any impact on the majesty of the implacable sea. And that is honestly the single biggest uh, payoff or, or takeaway from this book I've written, which shows how this has been going on for a very long time. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, you also write in your prologue, and I quote you again, uh, the interactions of human maritime communities with marine biological communities have remained largely uninvestigated because of the enduring assumption that the ocean exists outside of history. So what do you mean that the oceans exist outside of history, and, and why do you think that is? Well, in other words, that humans couldn't affect them that they were implacable and unfathomable and wild always. Right. When Henry David Thoreau traveled on Cape Cod in the middle of the 19th century, he looked out at the North Atlantic and described it as, I forget the exact word, but you know, unfathomable, implacable, uh, tumultuous, whatever. Again, the sense that human control stopped with the shore. So, well, you know, you, you, you go through the Renaissance and no Western European imagined that he or she could comprehend God's nature, much less control it. That was just beyond, you know, the pale. And then you get into the 18th century and the Enlightenment, of course, and people are beginning to think more about regulating nature and how it works. But again, the ocean was just beyond the pale. So I have a, a feature sea serpents in this book. I wrote a pretty serious book in historical marine ecology or marine environmental history. Um, that has sea serpents. And, there, and I put the sea serpents even one chapter title just to make sure nobody would miss the point. My point was that I wanted to honor past humans on their own terms. And even if I don't believe in sea serpents these days, based on my understanding of contemporary marine science and taxonomy, hmm. um, 200 years ago, people in communities near where I live were, were quite convinced that sea serpents still cavorted in the sea right here off Gloucester, Massachusetts. What happened, I think, Tony with the dismissal of the idea of sea serpents, which came during the 1820s and 30s and 40s here, by then it was largely gone. And the invention at the same time of modern uh, inventions, you know, industrial technologies such as pursanes to uh, catch many more fish, is that people lost something. They lost that sense of the ocean being implacable and wild and unfathomable, and they began to imagine by the antebellum periods here in America that it could possibly be understood and even engineered. And so that gets us into post-Civil War 
you know, latter 19th century fisheries management, which is occurring both in the U.S. and, and Canada. Um, and for a long time, the conceit of the managers and the scientists was that uh, humans couldn't affect the sea and that they, the scientists, would understand more about fish reproduction and, and habits and develop better technologies to help fishermen keep hitting it hard. Meanwhile, the fishermen who can see every day what's happening say, oh, we shouldn't hit it so hard. No, we need some regulations. Oh, this isn't going well. Tony, one of the big takeaways here is that the compelling story from the 1850s until about World War One was a story that fishermen told that was based around the terms depletion, degradation, overfishing. And in those years, it was the fishing community that said, we need to conserve, we need to regulate, we cannot adopt willy-nilly these new technologies such as ultimately uh, steam-powered trawlers. And it was the scientists during that period said, no, no, fish on, fish on, there's plenty of fish in the sea, boys, we'll, we'll get you some better gear and understand how they produce and everything will be rosy. And then in the 1920s, around 1930, the sides switched. It's, it happened so quickly, Tony. The terms of the debate remain the same, abundance versus depletion. But the fishermen were now saying, fish on, press harder, don't regulate us. Because by then, they had an avalanche of cheap fish being dragged up by these trawlers, and they'd forgotten the lessons that their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers had known. And by then, the scientists were saying, wait a minute, boys, wait a minute. We're killing all these cod No, we need bigger mesh size. We need some closed seasons. No, the hell with you, lads. We're going to fish harder. <laughs> so the terms of the debate, you know, they, they say the same for a century. The, the side switch, though, and that's very important to understand that for a very long time, it was the fishing community that was uh, pushing for regulation. Yeah, there's there's echoes in that with the the collapse of the the cod stocks and the grand banks and and the 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 role of small boat fishermen versus you know the big fish companies and that we'll, we'll get into that you know in a minute maybe I want to just look shift a little bit uh, to the issue of technological change if I could it would seem that te- technological changes adopted by fisher people over time have been a real key driver in the initial success in capturing fish but also in the subsequent depletion of stocks. For example, again, you write about changes in the mid-19th century by the New England fishing industry. You write, uh, quote, tub trawling, as contemporaries called long lining, because the lines were coiled in tubs, increased fishermen's catching power from four hooks to 400 or more. And end of quote. So um, I wonder if you could comment on the role of technology on the state of fish stocks over time, and, and more generally on the impact on the marine environment. Yeah, it's a it's a very compelling story. Um, by the time we get men like Captain John Smith and Samuel de Champlain sailing to this side of what we call the Atlantic, um, fish stocks in coastal Europe had been depleted. They all recognized this, they all expressed it, and they were looking for virgin stocks. Why? Fishermen can do two things when they are confronting smaller catches. They can either develop more efficient technology to fish harder, fish deeper, fish longer, or they can take the technology they have and go to places that have not yet been fished. And so what we have, Renaissance Reformation periods in European history, is that European fishermen took the technology they had and they came across first 
to Iceland and then to Newfoundland and the Gulf of St. Lawrence and then to the Gulf of Maine and the coast of New England. So they took those technologies that were no longer very effective in Europe because stocks had been depleted and those technologies worked great here in the Americas. Okay. Yes, right. You run ahead. Catches go down. You said you're a sailor. You might actually imagine if you spent some time in God's great Atlantic that the idea of leaving your mothership in a dory to go out in a fog a few miles away to fish is lunacy. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. For 300 years, fishermen hand-lined from along the rail of their vessels. They hand-lined along the rail, 300 years. And the landings were 150 to 250,000 metric tons of cod a year late 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, early 1800s. Okay, pretty steady, pretty sustainable, roughly 200,000 metric tons of cod a year coming out of this this Western Atlantic system. But by the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, the catches are going down. The insatiable demands remain. And so people say, well, if we, if we start long lining, if we start setting out these big long lines with hundreds and hundreds of hooks so that each fisherman, instead of tending four hooks, fishing along the rail, is out in a dory setting a long line, increase the catching power. Imagine the, 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 the footprint of the, of the schooner now has gone much bigger from just along the rail of the 60, 70-foot schooner to, uh, to this net, network of long lines set out by dories. Fishermen drown, they die, but that's the price of doing business. So... There's an innovation that increased catching power dramatically. So fishermen had said, oh, the catchers are going down, boys. But then they put in this new innovation, technological change, and the catchers come back up again. Okay, run ahead some more. Turn of the century, World War I era, introduction of uh, internal engines, uh, steam engines, gasoline engines, diesel engines later, to, uh, to fishing boats. Those engines saved lives. Of course, men are going to adopt them. Those engines increased catches. Of course, men are going to adopt them. But were there any restrictions or regulations or concerns expressed? Everybody knew that catches have been going down. That's why these engines were considered now to be so tremendous. You could, you could drag rather than hook fish. And so the catches went back up again. So what gets lost in that avalanche of cheap fish is the knowledge that was deeply embedded in the communities that catches were going down. If you look at the congressional testimony in 1912 to the U.S. Congress about whether or not these newfangled inventions, steam trawlers, should be legal or not, who opposed it? Well, John Fitzgerald, the mayor of Boston, the largest port in the uh, Western Atlantic, uh, the Gloucester, Massachusetts Board of Trade, and so on and so They were all opposed. They knew what had happened in, in Europe already. They said, if we introduce this technology, what Captain Thompson said in the testimony, we introduced this, the fish will all be gone in seven or eight years. He wasn't wrong by much. It took 70 or 80 years, actually 80 years after his testimony, that John Crosby, your minister of fisheries and oceans, pulled the plug and closed the cod fishery in Canada. In ecological time, that 80 years is about the same as eight years. So Captain Thompson told the Congress, in seven or eight years, all the fish will be gone. And actually, it took 70 or 80, and all the fish were gone. So um, these guys, the people, the insiders in the industry, whether or not they were in Brigus, Newfoundland, or Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, or Gloucester, Massachusetts, 
they knew what was going on, and they there is a very, very long paper trail. I've written this thorough and comprehensive book because there's a thousand years of paper trail and then actually archaeological evidence early on. But this is a very, very, very well-documented tale that most people had ignored. So I guess I came along. I was able to do it. Well, let me just, just continue along here with some of the fascinating insights you provide in your book. You note there's a complicated relationship between marine ecological processes on the one hand and human activities that both impact the state of marine species and, in turn, the consequences for humans that, that depend on the sea, right? Um, for ag- Again, to quote you, you, you note, uh, quote, the critical challenge is to avoid the false dichotomy that changes in marine systems are caused either by human factors, such as overfishing, pollution, or habitat destruction, or by natural environmental effects. What exactly do you mean by this? The ocean functions in light of very different time scales. You know, you have a tidal time scale that's every six hours. You have a lifespan time scale that can range from a couple of, of days to many, many decades, depending on which organism you're looking at. You have, of course, the longer-term geological time scale, you know, the Gulf of Maine, for instance, that, that borders... Uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and the states of Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts uh, uh, down here in, in the U.S. The Gulf of Maine is actually a very, very recent arm of the of the ocean because of the glaciation and then the uh, depression of certain parts of the seafloor and then the melting of ice, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you look out at, at Brown's Bank and George's Bank and Cape Cod, which are the glacial moraines, you know, the sand pushed down by that by that wall of ice. The Gulf of Maine is actually a pretty new arm of the ocean. So, um, you know, we know this. Uh, the explorers in the 17th century did not did not know this. But what I'm getting at is that the ocean is a dynamic environment. Seawater is a very deceiving medium. We look at it, and with just our naked eye, it looks like it's all uniform. But actually, we know through instrumentation, and you might know through diving, that... Um, you go down, the layers of water change sometimes quite significantly rather rapidly. And so uh, salinity can change, temperature can change, light penetration can change, uh, currents, uh, both uh, major oceanic currents as well as tidal swirling currents, um, all affect uh, the ocean. So it's anything but a uniform medium. It's very dynamic. And we know that there are a number of factors. You know, climate change is now considered a a big one, but if you just look at like the North Atlantic Oscillation and other uh, long-term factors, they affect uh, predator-prey relationships. What sorts of prey is available? Um, and so, the uh, uh, there was a very famous study done a long time ago in Europe that correlated about 600 years of climate information with herring catches, and it turns out that um, herring and a similar kind of fish to herring called pilchards, um, fluctuate sometimes by decades. You know, fishermen in the English Channel and other places would make a great living at herring for many years. I mean, I'm talking now back to medieval and, and early modern times. And then the herring would stop and and pilchards would come in. Well, we know now it, it has to do with regime changes in the forage that those fish eat. And there's a kind of arrow worm that's preferred by herring and not by pilchers and vice versa. So as the, as the 
biological conditions make it more um, palatable for arrowworms to grow, that population booms and then a different kind of uh, fish comes in. It's a forage, you know, predator-prey relationship. So there's a, a million relationships like this where the ocean is very dynamic. But if for a long time humans imagined it as incomprehensible and uniform, and if they're lacked, if they're locked into a older religious mindset that assumed that God, in His infinite wisdom, made the ocean perfect to begin with, and he, all humans had to do was understand it more, um, then you lose that sense of dynamism. So what what we know today is that catches are impacted by changing natural conditions as well as pressures that humans have put on the system but sometimes the pressures that humans have put on the system in one part of the system don't actually show up as change until decades later in another part of the system so it's not a linear kind of relationship and that's right late 19th early 20th century uh, uh scientists you know let's say like the grand banks of Newfoundland or whatever is a coupled human natural system which is that there are these natural influences on it uh, and that there are human influences on it, and sometimes those influences work in synergy to create greater depletions, and sometimes they work sort of at cross-purposes to each other and things stay more steady. But you've got to imagine that humans are active players in the system, but by no means controlling it. There's so many other things to, to, uh, to examine here that you bring up in your book. Uh, one of them has to do with regulations. And you write in, um, I think it's chapter five of your book, to quote you again, the first federal fishing regulations adopted in 1887, after Manhattan, mackerel, and halibut stocks had crashed, were designed to perpetuate mackerel in a living sea no longer imagined as immortal, end quote. And yet you provide evidence that massive declines in marine species was occurring over a period of more than 150 years, even previous to that. So I guess what I'm wondering here is, why did it take so long for any government involvement to come about to protect fish? Well, it, that, that regulation you spoke about was the first U.S. federal regulation, the first U.S. national regulation to, to affect the fisheries. But there had been many, many... Um, regulations prior to that by uh, a state level and in Canada at provincial level and also at the local level. So one of the most remarkable stories about um, regulation, which I uncovered in this book, was that in the first several generations of settlers in New England, people that are typically called the Pilgrims and the Puritans, um, the magistrates who were in charge of those newly formed governments imposed regulations to restrict overfishing in this extraordinary sea of abundance lapping at their feet. And you and I would look back and say, how could 20,000 English settlers in, in the coast of New England with some heavy, clunky shallops going out to fish uh, striped bass or cod or mackerel or whatever um, influence that extraordinarily abundant sea? And yet the magistrates, who had all been born in Europe and England and come over, they knew what they had left behind. And they got here and they saw it, and they started to impose registrations to not overfish. So from about 1660 to the early 1700s, there are regulations imposed in the colonies here in New England um, to not overfish striped bass, to 
not fish mackerel in their spawning season, to uh, close the cod fishery in their spawning season, et cetera, et cetera, as well as, of course, some regulations on river fish, you know, anadromous fish that, that come in from the sea and swim up the rivers to spawn, the ones that are really easy to catch. So it's a it's really quite a stunning story to recognize that that there were concerns already and that those immigrants had brought in their baggage knowledge of depletion in European seas. But then you run ahead um, to the provincial legislatures, uh, pre-revolutionary America and and Atlantic Canada. Provincial legislatures debated fish regulations all the time, mostly on anadromous species, but sometimes on others. And then um, uh, revolutionary legislatures, but we have very well-documented evidence of these discussions and many, many laws along the way. So the federal government in this country, the U.S., did not get into the fisheries regulation business until the 1880s. There had been fisheries regulations proposed for the Menhaden fishery the decade before uh, in the Congress, but they they were defeated. But there's a a long trail of them. But I went through very uh, carefully archives in, in Nova Scotia and Maine and Massachusetts finding petitions in the middle of the 19th century um, from thousands and thousands of fishermen that were outraged at what was happening in the fishery and were deathly afraid that overfishing was going to be the death knell of their communities. And so you get these communities um, on the coast of Nova Scotia and Maine and Massachusetts who didn't have much else, much other economic opportunity. It was often the fishermen who were, again, lobbying the legislatures hard to impose restrictions. You, you, you document the lobbying that went behind you know, the scenes to, to try to block regulation at the federal level. And, and I mean, it seems to me, from what you're saying and writing about in your book, that this, the role of this lobbying really had quite an impact in, uh, in delaying effective regulation, at least at the federal level. Would you say that's correct? Edith, the audio assistant here again. So we lost Professor Bolster there to some sound difficulties. But in this section, he was answering Tony's question by saying that when he's referring to fisheries in the book, he's mostly talking about smaller scale fisheries. But as he's going to point out in this next part, you can't talk about fishing communities all in one breath because there are also large corporations that are involved in the fishing community. In Atlantic Canada, there are some very large seafood corporations in our lifetimes that are very different from small-scale independent lobstermen, let's say. So um, often when these uh, debates about regulation occurred, especially in the U.S. when the uh, when they shifted from state legislatures to the National Congress, the more industrialized interests lobbied hard in Congress. And you can imagine a trust. We used to talk about the oil trust and the sugar trust, and there was a fish trust. And uh, these were the industrialists who were making huge amounts of money uh, from uh, processing Menhaden. It was the first uh, industrialized fishery in that there were processing factories, that there, it was the first steam-powered vessels, motorized uh, fishing vessels that were catching fish, delivering them to factories, and then using steam equipment to, uh, after initial boiling, to, to process the, uh, the fish and extract the oil. This is because as the world's supply of whales declined, which we New Englanders had been very uh, adept at catching and processing into oil, they were not accessible. The technology that existed by the 1930s, the slaughter of whales in Antarctica had ramped up dramatically 
but that was with new technologies. So sailing ship and whaleboat technology, they basically exhausted what they could get. So turn to home, insatiable demands for oil. What can you get oil from? Well, if not from whales, the biggest creatures in the sea, go to Menhaden, one of the smaller fish in the sea, but a very oily fish. Right. They're schooling fish. They can be caught in nets in large quantities. So it's that industrial colossus, the Menhaden Trust, if you will, the oil biz, that, um, of course, could lobby the Congress very effectively. They had lawyers and lobbyists and the rest. So what's, what's really important here, Tony, to talk about, and I found this in Canada as well, more so in the U.S., but the documentary record is just overflowing with evidence about these disputes. And so, um, you know, part of what I'm... I, I, pleased with the way this book came out is that it's based on a very, very, very solid record of uh, evidence because when these debates occurred in provincial legislatures or uh, national legislatures, uh, there's a paper trail. That's great news, I guess, and particularly for uh, future historians. Um, do, do you see uh, um, colleagues, I say younger colleagues or whatever, picking up the uh, baton here and, and, and pushing... Uh, the exploration of uh, marine history and so on uh, further? Uh, yeah, unquestionably. I mean, you know, uh, we have historical marine ecology, which is a branch of, of natural science, but looking, thinking historically. There's actually a, a wonderful young woman, uh, Lauren McClenahan, who's now out at the University of Victoria. I think she's got a big uh, Canadian SSRC kind of grant. Um, she's an American, but she's recently moved to Canada. She's one of the leaders in that field. But um, people at Dalhousie have been working on this now for uh, 25, 30 years. Some people at Memorial. And um, so that's historical marine ecology. Natural scientists trained to think historically. And then we have uh, marine environmental history, which are you know historians or uh, humanist social scientists, but working with like like my book is there to this intersection to the to the world of, of natural science. So on both fronts, um, you know, I was part of a I was part of a big team for <clears throat> ten years uh, from uh, 2000 to 2010. The Census of Marine Life it was a big international project. Had lots of different arms. Um, we had a branch here at UNH. There was a branch at Dalhousie, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Though that project, that overall project, uh, got hundreds of millions of dollars of grant money, and we had a piece of that for the historical arm, the historical research arm called HMAP. And so my book really came out of that of that work, but it was, you know, me among others, uh, colleagues in those days who were sort of inventing this field. I mean, I started teaching a course in marine environmental history at UNH when there was no such thing. Um, you couldn't find any readings in marine environmental history as such because it didn't exist. But so I, you know, I put things together and cob from, from history and social science and natural science. And then I began to collaborate with a Danish colleague and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, here we are. But the point is, Tony, that uh, younger people, people who are still actively in the height of their career, unlike people like me who retired and went off sailing, um, are still, uh, yeah, very much so working on these topics. Now, there's many other questions I could ask you and so on, but I think uh, for the time being, perhaps we should wrap it up with one final question to you. I wonder if you could reflect a minute on what you think historical studies of the oceans can teach us today as we try to 
reverse the damage that we've done to marine environments um, in the future? Um, well, there's, it's, it's very simple. I, I think I wrote towards the end of this book that uh, what marine environmental history shows is that it's never been the fisherman's fault or it's never been the scientist's fault or it's never been the politician's fault. Um, there's plenty of blame, but there's some accolades to go around with each of those groups. The interlocked system is to blame. And the interlocked system with its shifting baselines and its sense of having to honor multiple constituencies and the fact that lawyers get involved and, and that there's money to be made and so, so on and so forth has always just kicked the can down the road. Yeah, we know it's getting worse, but we should really do something about it, but maybe later, okay? Two points come out of this, Tony. They're really simple. Number one is that humans have never, ever been able to control the ocean. We want certain goods and services from it, but despite our science, our regulation, our fortitude, whatever, we have never been able to control it. We've never been able to get exactly what we want. And number two, humans have a very good track record, documented for a thousand years in this book I've written, of following up. The ocean of actually compromising the goods and services that it provides that we human societies need. So the only way to, to navigate going forward in light of those two strong points is to take a precautionary approach when estimating a society's impact on an ecosystem. You take a precautionary approach. No, you're not going to have all the information, but do the less destructive Thing. Ultimately, stewardship pays dividends. Remember, cod banks of what's today Canada and the Northeast United States provided pretty sustainably about 150,000 to 250,000 metric tons of fish for over three centuries. And it wasn't until uh, it got hit much harder with technology that could have been reined in but wasn't that the real damage to the cod fishery occurred. There had been some damage along the way, but the real damage. But so at, at every step of the way in these different uh, depletions that occurred, whether the depletions were of anadromous you know, river fish or the depletions were of seabirds or the depletions were of marine mammals or the depletions were of fin fish, et cetera, et cetera. At every step of the way, more effective regulations and buy-in from the fishing community would have led to sustainable profits over the long haul. Instead, people went for short-term profit and short-term capital accumulation and killed the goose that laid the golden egg. That's the takeaway that, that history provides. I think that's a, a really powerful way to, to end this um, interview with you. I want to thank you so much, uh, Jeffrey Bolster, uh, author of this very important book, The Mortal Sea, Fishing the Atlantic in the Age of Sail. Thanks so much for participating and, and contributing to our podcast, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me, Tony. Good luck. Thanks for listening to Edible Ocean Podcast. Tony Winson hosted and did the recruiting for the interviews. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. I also manage our Instagram. Follow us at edibleocean underscore podcast. 
follow Professor Tony on Twitter at Industrial Diet. This podcast was made with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada.